Okay, so I have the privilege of continuing a series that we started last week, and the series is simply called Let's Talk About Sex. Let's talk about sex. And this is um, a very sensitive subject matter. And as you saw the signs posted on the doorways when you came in, if you have small children that you don't want to accelerate the timeline of when you have a conversation with them about these subjects, it would be very helpful to you and perhaps them if you check them into our kids' church. It's a wonderful lesson down there for them. But I do want to have the freedom to speak about this subject without um, the fear of sort of exposing them to something that you don't want them to hear yet. So I'll leave that up to you. But this sermon is rated PG-13. I just want to uh, warn you about that up front. But we're talking about let's talk about sex. And in this series, we, we plan to just talk about some very important things, and that's sex and sexuality. We started last week uh, with a very uh, interesting subject matter. And we, start, we started last week by talking about you know, developing a Christ-centered uh, sexual ethic. And some people will sort of cringe when you talk about sex in church. Listen, that's dirty. That's sort of taboo. Don't talk about that in church. And I say, we better talk about this in church. We better deal with this subject matter. We better put some godly lenses and uh, view this whole issue of sex and sexuality because things are just kind of going crazy if you look at the culture around us. And there's one thing that we have to, there's one thing that we have to get right. It's our sex, sexuality our outlook on sex, how we steward this thing, because the culture gets this so wrong. The culture gets this so wrong. And what I like about Jesus and what I like about the Father and what I like about the Scriptures is that it just drops a huge counterweight on the scales. And where the culture has just piled all of this wrong information, all of this misinformation about identity, sexuality, all this silliness, I love that the Word of God puts a strong and powerful counterweight on the scales to balance the thing back out again. But guess what? If we don't choose to engage the Word of God, we don't choose to gauge God's word, engage God's word and figure out what he has to say on the matter. We're going to be really messed up. We're going to really misuse this God-given aspect of who we are, and that relates specifically to God's gift of sex and sexuality. You know that this is a very broad subject, and I can, use, I can spend a half a year working through this material. I won't, though. But we plan to spend a few weeks on this, and I've just set some things forth last week as just some basic assumptions as we enter this subject matter, as we deal with this material. I set forth some basic assumptions for this series that we will move forward as. And first of all, that first basic assumption is that God has the final say. Anything we deal with, especially anything that's worth talking about, we have to realize that God has the final say on the matter. We also said that sex is a good thing. We approach sex looking at it as something that's devious, something that's bad, something that's dirty. We're going to misunderstand and misuse this gift that God gave us. Sex is a good thing. When God created man and woman, he told them in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, to go and to be fruitful and to multiply, right? It just so happens that the method that he gave us to do this is something that's really fun, really enjoyable, really exciting, but it's also something that Satan has used and he's twisted. And because he's twisted it, many Christians have adopted that philosophy that it's something bad, that it's something wrong, that it's something deviant. And I just want to reclaim sex for God, if, if I can do that for you today. I want to reclaim it. I want to <laughs> John's with me. <laughs> John and I want to reclaim this thing, okay? And we're going to say this is good. This is God-given, okay? 
And some of you have grown up in church where sex is just this taboo thing. It's talked about. You have to hush and you have to whisper when you say it. No, this is something that God has given us. And sex is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We've also concluded that there's a right way and a wrong way to manage your sexuality. Anything that you can do right, you can do poorly. Right? So God is not ambiguous. It's not this sort of ambient idea about sex and sexuality. There's a right way to do it. And there's a wrong way to do it. If you do it right, you're going to flourish. You're going to thrive. If you get it wrong... It's going gonna, it's gonna to mess with a lot of stuff, okay? Also, we said that there's freedom and there's forgiveness and redemption for any man of sexual brokenness or sins that you've committed in this area. There's freedom and there's healing and there's wholeness. I feel like we need to say that, all right? We, we talk a lot about how stuff is bad and what you should avoid and what you shouldn't do. I want to tell you that there's good news, that Jesus brings freedom. If you engage his word, if you engage his teachings, if you do this thing according to his plan and his purposes, there is freedom for those of us who have struggled in this area, and that's good news, right? So since we understand all of this and we conclude that sex is very important, like many other important and powerful things, I believe that God builds a fence around the things that are important and powerful. He sets some boundaries. You ever pass a power plant, right? Now, we love power. We, we, we powers our homes. It does all this cool stuff. But guess what? If any average Joe can just walk in there and fiddle with it, that's going to be problematic for a lot of people, especially Joe, right? So God builds a fence around things that are important, things that are powerful, things that are good but have terrible consequences if you misuse them. And this is what our culture dislikes. They don't like the fence. They want to come and go as they please. They want to twiddle with the knobs. They want to tweak and do stuff with, that they want to do with it. They don't like the idea that God just sort of puts a fence around it. But God does that for our own protection. Anything that's important, anything that's significant, anything that will contribute to you and bless your life, anything that has some power, God sets boundaries around it. He tells us in the scripture how we should manage our money, how we should manage our wealth. He puts some boundaries around it. He says, listen, don't go further than this. Don't invade these boundary lines. Our relationships, he gives us boundaries. He puts a fence around that. The institution of marriage, which many people dislike, especially these days, God puts a fence around that. Especially something as powerful and important as our sexuality, he puts a fence around that. And that's to keep the right stuff in and to keep the, right, the wrong stuff and the wrong folks out. And he does that because he loves you. And because he desperately wants you to get this right. Get this right. And as I said, we talked last week about a Christ-centered sexual ethic. And we talked about how to build that. And what we came up with is that we need to actively and not passively let God, not this culture, shape our sexual ethic right now and not later. That's what we came up with, right? And faced with the beauty of sex and sexuality and the dangers of misuse, we have to figure out a way to deal with the stuff that would try to lure us and pull us into the wrong directions. We don't figure out a system. We don't figure out a plan beforehand. We're going to be messed up. We're going to be caught off guard. And listen, many greater people than I and yourself have fallen to this. So we've got to figure out a system. That's why I want to talk today about temptation. Specifically, I've called this message this morning, Resisting Sexual Temptation. There's a lot of things that pull on us. There's a lot of things that tug on us. There's a lot of things that lure us in with all of its sweetness and all these promises of happiness. But one very powerful one and specifically relevant to the series that we're in is sexual temptation. And if we don't come up with a way, a system to deal with this, to combat this, that's rooted deep within our hearts, that's God-given and God-breathed, we're not going to make it. 
you and I were not strong enough to make it. And temptation is simply defined as an enticement to do evil or to sin. There's tons of definitions for, you know, temptation, but this is a very nice one. An enticement or something that draws you in to do evil or to sin. Temptation is known to every single person. It was especially known uh, to Jesus. Scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Um, So, temptation is not the issue. Temptation is not the sin. And many of us feel guilty if we're tempted. We feel like we've sinned if we've we've been tempted or we're experiencing temptation. But temptation is not the sin. How we respond to it uh, is really the determination of whether we've faulted or, or whether we've sinned. And listen, Satan is really good at temptation. Scripture tells us that he comes to uh, kill, steal, and destroy. And one of the ways he does that, he just sorts to draw you, draw you in. And how does he do it so well? Because he knows what makes you say, wow. He knows what makes you take a second look. He knows what makes you lean in, okay? My father used to always uh, speak of Satan as a, as a door shaker. You know, he just doesn't have any power, but he just goes through the house, just sort of shaking the door and say, oh, oh, this one's unlocked. Oh, let me see what's in here. Oh, that's the point of weakness. Oh, they really enjoy this thing. Or this type of woman really makes this guy take a second look. Or this type of guy, or this type of deal, and this type of deal. And Satan is just observing this. He makes a note of it. And that's where he comes with the temptation. And many of us struggle with sexual temptation. Many of us have fallen to this. And I want God's word this morning to speak to how we can resist sexual temptation. We're going to look this morning in Genesis chapter 39. Uh, We're going to look at uh, part of the story of one of my favorite Bible characters, and that is Joseph. So Genesis chapter 39. We'll start at verse 1. But before I read that this morning, let me just pray. Lord, thank you so much for this, for this word that you've given me to speak. Thank you so much for your people who have gathered here, Lord, in your name, to not just worship you, God, but to hear what you have to say on this very sensitive subject matter. Lord, many of us deal with temptation. Many of us, Lord, uh, deal with sexual temptation. Many of us, Lord, have fallen into sin because we didn't have a system in place. We didn't let your word inform our decisions, Father. So we come, ask that you would come in power and you would speak clearly today, speak boldly to us, Father, that we might withstand temptation just like Jesus did. Lord, put power in these words that you've given me to speak. Let your truth and your light shine through. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 39, we'll start at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there's Bibles on the edges of your rows. We'll also be projecting this on the screens in front of you. So this is a sto- part of the story of Joseph. And some of you know this story, but some of you don't. And Joseph is just an Old Testament character. He's the son of Jacob. And we first meet Joseph, and he's about 17 years old in Genesis chapter 37. And the story of Joseph actually goes all the way through uh, chapter 50. It's a fascinating story of a fascinating uh, guy. Uh, and Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. He has this dream. It angers his brothers. His brothers get really jealous of him because he has this dream that puts himself above them. They don't understand this dream. They're upset by it. And because they're upset, they misuse him. They mishandle him. Instead of killing him, they just throw him in this pit. And eventually they sell him uh, t- into slavery, basically, right? So we pick up the story in verse uh, 39 where we, we, we continue the story of Joseph after he's been sold into slavery. Verse 1, Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders. He was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. And Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Verse 3, Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. And from the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you and because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Verse 10, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around, and when he went in to do his work, she came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, Come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave he brought into her house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said, but when I screamed, He ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in prison. The warden had no worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Now, you can probably see why Joseph is one of my favorite characters. You can especially get this sense if you read the entire story of Joseph. But one of the things I like uh, about Joseph the most, and one of the things that this pic, this, this, this uh, chapter illustrates, is that this Joseph is a picture, he's a picture of faithfulness. He's a picture of faithfulness. And how many of you know that faithfulness is hard to come by? these days. Loyalty, fidelity, it's hard to come by. It's hard to find in a person, a man or woman these days. And I like that Joseph is a virtuous guy, and what we see here is a picture of faithfulness. And what I've discovered about faithfulness, specifically faithfulness to God, is that it makes you kind of faithful to others. And in fact, I haven't met anybody, I haven't seen anybody or witnessed anybody being a faithful to God in, in a whole and deep and abiding sense and uh, unfaithful in their other dealings in life or unfaithful in their relationships. So when I look at Joseph here, I see a picture of faith. When I look at this story, I see a picture of faithfulness. I think the beauty also of this story is that it paints for us a dual picture. I know oftentimes Joseph is the focal point of this story. He's the main character in this story. 
But I think that two characters here are experiencing extreme measures of sexual temptation. And that's not just Joseph, but it's also the wife of Potiphar. So this story is fantastic for us. It's very comprehensive for us, largely because it shows us somebody getting it very right. And it shows us somebody getting it very wrong. So we see a powerful dual picture here. When we look at this story, we see Joseph and the wife of Potiphar. And one of my main questions that I ask and sort of try to get us to focus on when we look at this story, especially uh, as we focus on Joseph's actions and how he deals with this temptation, is I think first it's important for us to consider what kind of guy was Joseph, right? Because there's an interconnectedness to who we are and how we respond to things. And if we pass or if we fail or if we succeed or fall on our faces, it really depends a lot on what we're made of, uh, of who we are. And I love the, one of my favorite quotes is I've quoted over and over is a, is a quote by Dr. Martin Luther King. And it says, the ultimate measure of a man or woman is not where he or she stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he or she stands at times of challenge and controversy. And many of us want to give ourselves pats on the back when we succeed on our good days. But I think the true measure of who we are, what we're made of, what we're really made of, happens at moments when we're tested, when we're tempted, when things lure uh, us in, and how we deal with these instances when we're tested and when we're tried. So the question is, what kind of man was Joseph? The scriptures tell us in verse 1, he was taken to Egypt. He was, uh, the Lord was with Joseph. He succeeded in everything he does. There's this whole laundry list, this whole resume of who Joseph was. And basically we see that he was a successful guy, which is not surprising to me because he was a faithful guy. I think there's a correlation between success and faithfulness. But Joseph was a successful guy. Scriptures also tell us that he was trustworthy, he could be counted on, that God was with him, that he had lots of power, lots of control over things. He had power over people. He had influence. He always seemed to rise to the top. And I think that's important when we consider this story because the greatest temptation comes at two points in your life, when you're doing really, really well and when you're doing really, really poorly. Uh, Many of you have found that to be true. In fact, my mentors have instructed me, listen, pay attention to guys that you're discipling, that you're mentally. Pay attention to them when they're on, on the mountaintop. Pay attention to them when they're on the mountaintop. Also, pay very close attention to them uh, when they're in the valley because those seem to be the times where we're most vulnerable. And Joseph is flying high. He's a slave, but he's in charge of all this stuff. He's got all this power. He's got all this influence. He's a good guy that God favors. Everything he does succeeds. This is who Joseph is. Not to mention, the scriptures tell us that he was a good-looking brother. He was a stud, right? He was well-built, the the, the text says, right? I'm not making this up. He was a good-looking guy, right? And oh, how difficult it is sometimes to be a good-looking guy. I mean, tell you, it's rough. Take it from me. It's rough sometimes. But this is who Joseph is. He's got all the right stuff, but it seems like the perfect conditions, the right conditions for him to be tested and to him to be tempted. And we just see if he passes or he fails. What type of man was Joseph? I think it's also important, since this is a dual picture, ask ourselves, what type of woman was Potiphar's wife? And we don't meet her until verse 7, but the first thing we hear about her is that Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully, Joseph that is, and she says, come sleep with me. Now, if we can learn anything from this whole uh, story, particularly as it relates to how someone gets it wrong, 
is we can look at where this all starts for her. It starts what? With the look. You know, Joseph comes into the house. He's doing all this stuff. He's got power. He's got influence. The brother looks good. And all of a sudden, the wife of the boss, she notices Joseph. And I mean, we notice beauty. We notice good looks all the time. But this isn't that type of notice. She, she notices him. She has an eye for him. And this is what we talked about last week. If we don't deal with those initial looks, and what we do with those initial looks, it's always, always going to snowball into something that's unmanageable. It's always going to evolve into fire that we t- try to take into our bosom without the idea that we'll get burned by it. But we see from the very beginning when we meet this woman what kind of woman she is. She's a powerful woman. She has influence. She's the wife of the boss. She has access to everything. But she looks onto Joseph with a lustful eye and doesn't stop there. She probably turns that thing over in her mind, thinks about the possibilities, thinks about what a great lover Joseph might be, how, how his resistance might be low to her beauty, presuming that she's a beautiful woman. She is the Potiphar's wife, right? And she turns that thing over in her mind, and then all of a sudden it, it flushes itself out into action, as we'll see as we look later. Stark contrast, very different people that we're dealing with here. And as we just motor through this story, we get to the moment of truth. The moment of truth. The moment when the temptation happens. The moment when Joseph is put to the test. The moment, excuse me, the moment when Potiphar's wife is put to the test. How will they respond? The scripture tells us, but this is the important sort of focal point of the story. So what happens, right? Potiphar's wife soon began to look at Joseph lustfully. Come sleep with me, she demanded. Verse 8, but Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. But she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her. And get this, he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come and sleep with me, right? She got forceful about it. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. Wow, Joseph finds himself in a tight spot. This beautiful woman will assume every reason, she, this woman has every reason to keep quiet about this situation, right? She doesn't win at all if she broadcasts this to anybody. She's a powerful woman. There's a lot at stake. This is the moment of truth. And many of us have found ourselves in this very scenario before. Very similar to this. Or on some level, you've been tested. You've been put in a situation where, listen, nobody would know. The conditions are right for you to just do whatever you want to do. Right? Nobody will find out about this inappropriate relationship. Nobody will know about this sexual encounter. Nobody will know about your internet surfing history. You've got, you know, the ability to delete that stuff and to cover your tracks. You've gotten good at it. The moment of truth, where we see what you're made of, where we see which way you're going to go. Many of us have been there. Some of us this week, we've been there. In many uh, uh, areas of life, but especially as it relates to sexuality, many times we're faced with this. So I think we need to look at how Joseph responds to this particular sexual temptation with this powerful and beautiful woman. Right? 
So Joseph says he refused, first say, he refused. He says, look, my master trusts me with everything in his entire house. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. This is a mouthful. But this is textbook stuff on how to deal with temptation, especially of the sexual variety. Scripture says he refused. Joseph was not confused about this woman's advances. He wasn't confused about what she was up to. She wasn't ambiguous about her her pursuit of him, and nor was he ambiguous about his refusal. And there's something that has to be definite, something that needs to be on record, something needs to be bold about your refusal to succumb to sexual temptation. Any gray area, any wishy-washiness won't stand the test. And as we look at God's textbook for how to deal with this, we see that Joseph appeals to the very same thing that I highlighted at the very beginning of this sermon, is that his faithfulness, his fidelity, his loyalty. Now, Joseph isn't engaged, nor is he married. Faithfulness to what? Faithfulness to whom? Well, first of all, he's faithful to his master, faithful to the guy that he works for. Undoubtedly, they become friends. And one of the things he cites is, is, listen, I got all kinds of power. I got all sorts of influence. The only thing my boss has to think about is what he's going to have for dinner. Why would I mess that up? Why would I screw that up? Why would I go against this guy who promoted me, who, who shows favor to me? Why would I do that? He's being faithful here, right? Joseph applied some logic to this thing, which is helpful. And logic often escapes us when we find ourselves in the midst of temptation, doesn't it? Logic, the ability to pause the thing and apply some reason and apply some logic and to think. Oftentimes we're thinking with the wrong organs and we're letting the wrong sets of emotions become, you know, in the driver's seat. If we learn anything from Joseph, and I think this dialogue is very helpful to us because he sort of thinks this out. He says, this doesn't make any sense. This is illogical. Now, I'm not supposing that Joseph wasn't even attracted to this woman. The scriptures doesn't tell us about that. But if any of you know, I mean, oftentimes you, 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 you recognize beauty. You can recognize sexiness, right, attractiveness. But that was not the issue. That was not in the driver's seat. Joseph's faithfulness and his principles and his standards that were informed by the God he served were in the driver's seat of this situation. And let me tell you something. You try to just just sort of wing this thing without any principles. You try to just sort of let the situational things play out. You don't actively pursue a Christ-centered sexual ethic. You figure, I'll think about that when I get into the situation. I'll wonder about it. I'll survey the circumstances once I get in the thick of it. Listen, you're you're, you're headed for trouble. You're not going to make it. You're not going to be as successful as Joseph was. And I think about many people over the course of history, especially recent history, famous figures, heads of state, people with all sorts of power, lots of stuff to lose. What might become of their legacy had they just stopped for a moment and applied some godly logic to this thing? If they would, as I often say, would have fast-forwarded the tape, how does this thing end? 
Yes, this woman is beautiful. Yes, I have the power to lure her into my bed. But how does this end? How does this affect my legacy? How does this affect my ability to govern? What does this do to my family name? What would this do down the road? When you consider the likes of Bill Clinton, Jesse Jackson Jr., Jim Trestle, head coach of Ohio State, John Edwards, Kwame Kilpatrick, former uh, mayor of Detroit, Elliot Spitzer, Joe Paterno, Joe Paterno and, and, and famously this week, Anthony Weiner, uh, former U.S. Uh, representative and mayoral candidate. What if these guys would have just stopped and said, you know what, let me just fast forward the tape here. What's going to happen? Yeah, this is going to be fun. I'm going to get a quick buzz. But I mean, what's going to happen if I fast forward the tape? What's, what's going to happen? How's, how's this going to affect me? Who's this going to hurt? Who, who's this going to hurt? What's going to be the fallout from this? And when I look at the transcript from this, trans, so this exchange, I see that you know, Joseph didn't have to do a whole lot of thinking. He didn't have to do a whole lot of figuring. Why? Because he was principled. He was a person of principle. And faithful people who are loyal to God and the statutes and principles that God sets forth, they are principled people. It's a principle, the fundamental truth or proposition that serves as a foundation for a system of beliefs or behaviors for a chain of reasoning, right? So Joseph was a principled person. And what were those principles? If we had to boil them down, I'm going to love God with everything I got. And I'm going to love people with everything I got. I'm going to be faithful to the God that loves me, the faithful to the God that I serve, and I'm going to be faithful and committed to the people that are around me. It's simple, right? We preach that every week, don't we? Principles. Principles, right? So he's faithful to the guy he works for, but he cites in this last sentence here in in verse 9 the most important thing. He said, how could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. A great sin against God. What a great place for the book to stop. A great sin against God. In other words, Joseph said, listen, I can't do this because I fear the Lord. A whole lot of stuff he could have said here. A whole lot of reasons. But he cuts to the one that matters most. Now, Joseph didn't say, listen, I don't, have, I don't have any condoms with me. You know, I can't. We can't. I don't have any protection. He didn't say, look, there's people right outside the door. You know, the Potiphar, he'll be back in just 45 minutes. I need, I need more time than that. He didn't say any of those things. He didn't say, well, we might get caught and, you know, this might get sticky. It might be weird between us afterwards. You know, he didn't say any of that because none of that stuff matters. What he says is, listen, this will be a great sin against God, and I cannot, and I will not do it, no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. Listen, you're cute, but you're not that cute. Listen, you're beautiful, but you're not that beautiful. You're powerful. This could backfire on me, but I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord. And what sticky situations that you've succumbed to in the past might you have overcome if you feared the Lord? What might you do differently? What might you have done differently in the past? Some of you in the recent past, if you employed the logic, you know what, I can't do that because that is a great sin against God. Proverbs tells us, Proverbs chapter 1, that the beginning of wisdom, which is skill at living, right? The beginning of wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord. 
Basically, the scripture is telling us, if you want to live this life above board, if you want to have success, you want to be skilled at living your life, the very beginning of that is to fear the Lord. And to fear the Lord means that what he says do, you do, without question. And what he says don't, you don't, without question. That's kind of the bottom line. There's some stuff in between, but that's the, that's the gist of it. Joseph says, I fear the Lord. And when you fear the Lord, you don't have to map out all of these, you know, a thousand scenarios. And what if this? What if that? You don't need to do all of that. Principal people that fear the Lord, they're quick to make decisions like this. Listen, there's no upside to this thing. There's no way that God will look at this exchange and go, yeah, Joe, it, you know, you can do it if this happens. You can sleep with this woman if that happens. Or you can spend all night looking at pornography. Or you can fool around with your girlfriend or boyfriend. If these conditions are right, we know that God says no. His standard for our sexuality, the fence that he builds around this sort of power plant of sex and sexuality is that all sex and all lust outside of heterosexual marriage is that's the boundary. That's the line. That's the fence. And if you're curious about what, what the scripture says about homosexuality, same-sex attraction, gay marriage, just, we will deal with that issue in, at length in the coming weeks. So don't unplug on me because of that issue. But we believe that the Bible draws a fence around sexuality, that all sex, all lust outside of heterosexual marriage is sin. That's his line. And you don't get to erase it. That's his fence, and you don't get to tear it down. You don't. You don't. Because that's God's fence, and because that's God's line that he drew, Joseph said, I dare not cross that line. I dare not unlock that fence. I dare not do it. And who would you be? How would you live if you feared the Lord? If you feared the Lord. So we look at how Joseph responds, but let's look at how the Potiphar's wife responds. We looked at an uh, example of somebody getting it right. Let's look at somebody who gets it very wrong, right? She looks lustfully at him. She puts pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refuses to sleep with her. And finally, she goes after him. She says, enough of this subtlety, enough of trying to be diplomatic. She laid hands on the guy. She went after him. In a bold and undignified way, she failed the test of temptation, as people who are powerful often do. She was undisciplined. She was like many who succumb to the powers and pressures of temptation. She was impulsive. How many of you know that being impulsive really puts you at odds with, 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 with passing this test of temptation? Impulse, a sudden, strong, unreflexive urge or desire to act on something. And if you're undisciplined, your impulses will be sinful. They will be selfish. They will be self-serving. They will impose on others, especially as it relates to sex and sexuality. How many children today are being abused perpetually in their homes because of some impulse to do such an unthinkable act. How many adults are not well-adjusted in their adult life because somebody acted inappropriately with them in their childhood and have screwed up their whole life. Impulsive people, they're not thinking about anybody else. 
When you're in the thick and in the throes and temptation and you're not steadied by the counterweight of God's word, listen, it's a dangerous situation for lots and lots and lots of people. You say, well, listen, my impulsiveness only hurts me. It's, listen, it's a victimless crime. I'm only, I'm only looking at internet pornography. I'm, I'm only watching these images. I'm only, listen, I'm not doing anything to anybody. This is, this is sort of a victimless crime. Who do you think is on the other end of the video? Who do you think, you know, is being harmed here? How do you think that's going to play out in your relationships with your wife and with your future spouse? This is a victimless crime? This is a victimless sin? No, there's going to be a huge tax to pay for a long, long time. And many of you, if I pass the mic, you can bear witness to you're paying the taxes even now. You've been forgiven, you've been redeemed, but there's still residuals, still residuals from some of the impulses that you gave into. And this is the story of Potiphar's wife. She's impulsive. And when you contrast the impulse with the principles of Joseph, the fundamental truths that he adhered to, the foundation that steadied him, which is God's word, his system of belief and his healthy, God-breathed chains of reasoning, we see why she failed. She was doomed from the start. She wasn't anchored in God's word. She didn't respect the lines that God had drawn there. She tried to break into the fence that God put around sex and sexuality. Of course she failed. Of course she faltered. Of course. Of course she fails and Joseph succeeds in the eyes of God. And I wish that the immediate fallout for her would have been great and the immediate reward for Joseph would have been great as well. But I come to tell you, I just want to be real with you today, that sometimes we will have to fight temptation, we'll have to fight impulse at great personal cost to our own selves, particularly in the short run. In the short run, I think this story is very comprehensive. It gives us a great window into this. Verse 13 says, when she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon guys came. My husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room and tried to rape me, but I screamed. Verse 16, she kept the cloak and then she told her husband about this. And listen, the husband got really, really mad and threw Joseph into, into prison yet again. He's in chains again. He was on top of the world just moments ago. And now he's in prison. This is the reward for faithfulness? This is, the, this is the consequence of faithfulness, of resisting temptation? Lord, you could write a better story than this. It would be really nice if the story continued and God smote the Potiphar's wife for her wickedness. And Joseph went around the corner, and there was a fair maiden, the most beautiful woman in all of the land, and Jesus descended and performed a wedding ceremony, and they went and had a wonderful honeymoon. End of story. That's a good ending. That's how I would write it. But that's not how this was written. So what's the point? What's the point? If you're looking to have your resisting temptation to feel really good at the point of impact, or really good shortly thereafter, when somebody's giving you a lot of attention, and it's a type of person that really makes you say, wow, really makes you feel good about yourself after that exchange. 
If you're walking away from stuff that you know will give you an immediate buzz, you're getting attention from somebody who you know will pull you and lure you outside of the fence or into the fence, whichever you know, vantage you may have, if you're expecting that to just feel really, really good, especially if you're not used to doing that, listen, I just want to bring you back down to earth. And sometimes it's with gritted teeth that you have to say no. It's sometimes that somebody that you've entrusted to tell your secrets to has to drag you by your neck up out of those situations so that you don't sin against holy God. And so you don't derail your life. And so you don't electrocute yourself on the powerful thing that is this sexuality because you've decided somehow to jump the fence. Sometimes it's hard to say no. Sometimes it's hard to avoid those things. Sometimes you've got to quit a job. Sometimes you've got to cut off some utilities or discontinue cable or internet. You've got to trade in your smartphone for a flip phone because you can't handle the, you know, the internet access. At any cost, God expects us to be successful and to pass these tests. It doesn't feel good. When you reject the advances of that powerful person at work, it might cost you your job. It might cost you a promotion. But Jesus would say, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want to be righteous? Or how bad do you want to be promoted? What do you value? What do your allegiances lie? And there was immediate fallout from this situation. And here, the Potiphar's wife, she goes on knowing what she's done, knowing the mess she made, and she seems to get away unscathed. But the Lord, in his goodness and in faithfulness, includes the final three verses in this story to let us know that if we fast forward, that God's response to faithfulness is blessing. May not come like you want it. May not come like you need it in your eyes. But God's response to faithfulness, and this is the Lord's response, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph even in the prison and showed him his faithful love, and the Lord made Joseph a favor with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. This is Joseph. Now, he's in the slammer right now, but who do you know in jail gets privileges like that? And I found that the faithful have a way of landing on their feet. Those of us who resolve, no matter what the consequence, I'm going to be faithful to God and his word. No matter what the fallout, no matter what this costs me, I have resolved to follow Jesus, to run from the things that he says run from and run toward the things that he says to run toward. I have resolved to do that. Those people always seem to land on their feet. Maybe not at the point of impact. But God responds to faithfulness. Now let's rewind the story, right, a little bit, right? And let's just, let's just say that Joseph does succumb to the temptation. He, for whatever reason, he decides to go ahead and do that, right? Now listen, he may have just really enjoyed the pleasures of having sex with a beautiful and powerful woman, and she may never speak another word about it. But guess what? What would he forfeit? The favor and the mercy and God shining down on him and smiling down on him. And if you read the rest of the chapters of Genesis and you tell, you read Joseph's beautiful and triumphant story, 
of how God's favor and God's wisdom helps him to rescue God's people from famine. Listen, this is, this is just the beginning of Joseph's life. This is the beginning of his rise to power and his obedience to God and just a number of illustrations of godliness and faithfulness. Now, look, he stands to lose a whole lot if he messes up here. He stands to lose a whole lot. Not to mention all the people that need this brother to make good decisions so that they can eat. <laughs> and what Satan would love to do, he just listen, don't, 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 don't think about tomorrow. Don't, don't think about tomorrow. Just think about right now. How good would that feel to do that? How awesome would it be that that beautiful woman, she wants a piece of you. How awesome would that be? Don't think about anything else. Don't think about the fallout. Don't think about how your wife's going to feel. Don't think about how this going to mess up your relationship with your children. Don't think about any of that. Just think, just think about right now. How awesome would this be? How good you're going to feel? He loves to focus you in on right now. And what he loves to shield from you is the fact that God honors faithfulness and that you need God's favor. You need his blessings if you're going to just live from day to day. Which makes it all the more reason, all the more necessary to resist temptation. What did Joseph do? He ran from it. He ran from it. He ran from it. He said, no, I can't do this. I can't sin against holy God. What's the big picture here? Worship team, you can come up. How do we resist temptation? If we use as a schematic, as a blueprint, this story of Joseph's life. If we skinny this story down, we see that he began being a person of principle. And those principles were rooted in the character and the nature of God. He feared the Lord. He feared the Lord. And he let God draw the lines in his life. And some of you, you're good people. You really are good people. But you said, Lord, I'm going to take care of drawing the lines on this particular issue. When it comes to my sexuality, just let me draw some of the lines. You can draw three of them, but let me just draw this fourth one. Lord, you can say, uh, you can have control over all these other areas, but when it comes to my sexuality, just kind of let me steward this thing and let me just sort of massage this and let me just sort of figure this one out. Just why don't you give that to me? And the Lord just say, look, look behind you. Look, look at your track record. Look at how that's worked out for you. Look at all the pieces. Look at all the luggage and the baggage that you're carrying. How has that worked out for you, the Lord would say. And many of us, if we're honest, if we're honest, we said it hasn't worked out too well for us. And some of you don't have sexual baggage in history yet, but the Lord said, look, look around you. Look around you at the people who are thriving, and look around you at the folks who are just barely making it, and just see what the difference is in their life as it relates to dealing with and thriving and pressing through sexual temptation. Who will you be? How will you live? Some of you, if you're here today, you, you would say, listen, I'm really, I'm really failing in this area. My resistance is very weak to the things that make me say, wow. And I need the strength and courage that comes from God's power, that comes from his indwelling Holy Spirit, if I'm going to pass the test, if I'm going to reach the finish line. I need, I need something more. I need something more than what, I'm, what I have. I need, something, I need to do some things differently today. I think the Spirit of the Lord is here. 
The Spirit of the Lord is here to help you with that today. And some of you here, you're fighting the good fight, and you're winning. You're resisting temptation, but you feel your resistance getting weak. You said, Lord, I just need, listen, I need you to top me off here today. I need you to top me off today because that person, that internet, that pornography, whatever, that's, that's calling me, and I just feel my resistance getting weak. Lord, I need, I need a touch today. And my prayer is that as we worship, as we worship today, the Lord will give you exactly what you need. I pray that you will be brutally honest with the Lord today with regard to where you're being tempted and where you're falling down and allow the Lord to just come in and do what he does best, and that's fix broken people. That's my prayer for us as we worship. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord, for what you're doing here. Thank you for this word. Lord, though it cuts us, it's showing us who we really are. And though the temptations, Lord, embarrass us and they, they, they are uncomfortable, Lord, it's showing us the real us. So, dear Lord, I just pray that by your spirit, you would come in power today, that you would take away any condemnation, you would take away any guilt or any shame. Lord, and I just pray that your holy conviction is what we would feel this morning. And for those of us who are struggling, for those of us who are failing over and over and over, Lord, we pray your strength, we pray your courage. And for those of us who are, who are succeeding, Lord, we're, 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 we're winning these battles, but we feel our resistance getting weak, Lord, I just pray that you would just touch us again right now. But fall fresh in this place. Fall fresh in this place. As we press in, as we lean into a place of worship this morning. Lord, would you meet us here? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.